Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. We are living in remarkable times, a global pandemic that challenges our health and well-being, bringing with it economic and social disruption, environmental destruction and increase in extreme weather for our changing climate that affects so many communities, big and small and a technological transition that's changing work, knowledge and information locally and globally. As these challenges ebb and flow, the call for effective political leadership is a loud one, made by all sides of the political spectrum. We're delighted to bring together a mini-series on leadership. What is good leadership and where will we find it? And how might our future be influenced by the leaders that we choose? So welcome to Policy Forum Pod, a podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its regions. Policy Forum is produced by policyforum.net as part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. And the Crawford School, of course, is one of the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy schools. I'm reminding listeners again to check out the degree programs and short courses that are available at Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. I'm Anagreta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow from the College of Health and Medicine, and I'm delighted to be back in the studio today with my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Hi, Anagreta. It's great to be here, and it's good to be here together. We missed a couple of weeks of being together in the studio, so it's nice to be back. It's always more fun when we're working together. It definitely is. So I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and this is really exciting to be at the beginning of this mini-series on leadership. And of course, Political leadership has been much discussed in recent years. Donald Trump's approach to leadership triggered much debate about the nature of what leadership is, the place of integrity, the common good and empathy, or more correctly, what happens when these things are absent from leadership. And of course, these issues have not only been raised in regard to Trump, the rise of populist leaders around the world has raised similar questions. Crises often make or break leaders. And Anna Greta, as you were saying, we are in incredible times at the moment. Pandemic, climate emergency, social division, growing inequality are just some of the issues that have focused attention on different types of leadership. And much has been made of empathetic leadership, as as many would point to um, Jacinta Ardern in the wake of the terrorist attack in Christchurch and the way that she has handled you know, many situations. In Australia, the ways in which leaders have responded to climate emergency, to pandemic, and to some of the really confronting issues around gender-based violence and discrimination that we've discussed here on the pod have been subject to scrutiny. And so we think, as Anna Greta was saying, it's time to take a deep dive into leadership, particularly political leadership. What has leadership traditionally been and what new forms of leadership are emerging How do we increase diversity in political leadership? And most importantly, as we're going to discuss today, what can we learn from history? So to begin the conversations that will unfold over the next few weeks, we're joined today by two outstanding guests, both deeply knowledgeable about Australia's political history and both deeply engaged in political issues today. Anna Greta, who's joining us? Yeah, we're so lucky to have these two start this conversation Today on the pod, we've got two extraordinary experts in the area of Australian politics and leadership. 
Chris Wallace, who's the Associate Professor at the University of Canberra's 5050 by 2030 Foundation. She's a visiting fellow here at the Australian National University National Centre of Biography. And Chris's work, I'm sure, will be known to many of our podcast listeners. Her work centres on structural solutions for gender equity in the public sector, leadership roles and in political representation. Chris has written quite a number of books, most recently the excellent How to Win an Election on the Australian Labor Party's 2019 federal election loss, and of course biographies including that of Germaine Greer and John Hewson. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you with us. Thank you. And alongside Chris is Frank Bongiorno. Frank is, of course, Professor and Head of the ANU School of History. He's an expert in Australian labour, political and cultural history. And he's the author of many books, including The 80s, The Decade That Transformed Australia, and The Sex Lives of Australians, A History. Welcome, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Anna Greta. So you've both heard the introduction here today, and we wanted to start by delving into the nature of a political leadership in Australia, past and present. But at the onset, is there a particular Australian form of leadership? No, I don't think there's a, a particular Australian form of leadership. I think we've had different styles of leadership across our political history. I mean, I've always been very, long been very influenced by the work done by Australian political psychologists actually on on leadership. And one of them in particular, Graham Little, um, boiled it down to three styles of leadership, three approaches, which he called strong leadership, group leadership, and inspiring leadership. And uh, we find all three of those in different types of different leaders in, in Australian political history. We sometimes find strands of those different approaches and styles within the one leader. I mean, little on the whole saw strong leadership as being very characteristic, I guess, of the centre-right of politics. He tended to see group uh, leadership in particular as being more on the centre-left or social democratic, inspiring. You tended, to, again, to find around sort of the, the social democratic side. He saw leaders like Trudeau in Canada or Whitlam in Australia is coming out of that kind of uh, approach. And I've always found that really, really helpful, actually. And I think it holds up well, actually, in thinking about mm -hmm. some of the leadership that we've seen internationally during the pandemic and indeed more generally in recent years with the populist revolt and all the rest of it. I mean, the populist revolt often produces, I think, a kind of over-the-top version of what what uh, Little described as as strong leadership, for instance. Chris, what are your thoughts on that? Is there a particular form of Australian leadership? Well, I kind of like Frank's approach and uh, it's a very useful kind of template through which to sort leaders in a, a very straightforward manner. I think there is one distinctive characteristic of Australian politics compared to, say, New Zealand politics. It's very rough here. And if you talk to New Zealanders, you know, particularly those who emigrate here, uh, including at the ANU, they often go, oh, my God, it's, you know, Australian culture, so brutal. And this was, uh, I remember, a revelation to me the first time I heard it. But she explained that there was a, a much more polite culture in New Zealand. And indeed, when you look at Jacinda Ardern's prime ministership in New Zealand, you know, and admired around the world, it's easy to see how Jacinda Ardern could happen in New Zealand. You can also see that kind of prime ministership potentially happening in Australia. Uh, the obvious person is Labor frontbencher Tanya Plibersek, I think, could pull off that kind of prime ministership. Uh, the thing is, to get to that position in Australia in a polity that is so much rougher and tougher in its political practices, particularly at this minute when the Labor Party is in transition to a kind of... Um, working out how to deal with a, a deep fragmentation of its long-standing factional system, uh, which it really hasn't sorted out how to, to grapple with, and, of course, on the LNP side of politics, dealing with other issues uh, like evangelical takeover of its branch system uh, and so forth. You've got a special moment in Australia which is slightly chaotic and definitely an historic break on both sides, not yet resolved. The direction in which it was, is re resolved in both camps is very unclear. So I think that that roughness of Australian political culture historically, not particularly desirable, but definitely there. Perhaps on the way out, though, it's hard to see. Well, you know, depending on how things resolve on both sides of the major party system, uh, I think it does make us a bit different. So we're, we're going to pick up on some of these issues of, of where we're going in terms of, of political leadership. And, and as you say, Chris, given this moment in time that we're at. But before we get there, I wanted to take us 
right back. And and Frank, to to reflect a little bit on the the period when Australia's constitution was being drafted, when we were coming together as a federation, and to ask you how political leadership was conceptualised in those early days. What were the principles and the debates that were guiding some of the early thinking around leadership and, and particularly the roles that, that Prime Minister or State Premiers would take on? Yes. I mean, there's been really interesting research in recent years about how gendered it was actually and, and the ways in which certain codes of being male, of being masculine, were really powerful actually in the way that early prime ministers, for instance, and those federation fathers and so on, Sharon, that you mentioned, were actually framed and how they presented themselves. So, you know, a, a figure such as Alfred Deakin, who was Australia's second prime minister, and I guess the, the major figure really of the period leading up to the First World War, the image he presented of himself, the ways he was framed in in media of the day, were as a respectable but also kind of, um, I suppose you'd say, virile man, you know, a man of, of great vigour, of physical vigour. Um, the, the emphasis on his, his eloquence was very powerful too. So speech was very much a part of a sense of the kind of um, comportment and bearing of the leaders. And then by way of contrast, uh, including in, in Deacon's own writings, it has to be said. So he was his own propagandist. Uh, uh, he was writing secretly, of course, for the, the London press while he was prime minister. So, you know, you'd get these articles on Mr. Deacon said this and Mr. Deacon thought that. And of course, it was Deacon himself who was writing this stuff. But he was incredibly hostile to, to George Reid, another of those, those federation figures and early prime ministers. And of course, Reid in Deacon's writing in the media of the day is presented almost like a windbag. Um, he was gross overweight. He had little matchstick legs. He was seen as lacking in manly vigour and as being sort of less suitable. And we, we've had a colleague, Bethany uh, Phillips-Pedalston, who's, who's done really detailed work around this stuff on the early 20th century. And it's incredibly interesting because, you know, we, we, we tend to think of those leaders as just that, as kind of leaders in, an, in a, a neutral sense, but they're actually, you know, highly gendered figures. And, and I think when we're looking at uh, how political leaders leadership is still being conceived. The ordeals of a Julia Gillard, for instance, of a few years ago, um, the prospects of a, of a Tanya Plibersek, we, we need actually, I think, to delve into the ways in which political leadership has been gendered in that sort of way. I mean, I, I don't think we get very far, for instance, in understanding Scott Morrison's leadership unless thinking about, you know, thinking about the ways in which he presents himself as a certain type of man and a very different kind of man, I think, from both of those I just mentioned in Deacon and Reed. Um, he's clearly gesturing towards a number of more recent cultural impulses. I like the da the, the daggy dad Im image, which I think is is different, for instance, from the, the, the physical vigour or, or, you know, any number of other masculine images of leadership that we find in Australian history. It's a very different image, for instance, from, say, someone like uh, uh, Robert Menzies, you know, one of the, the key founders of the Liberal Party. I mean, Morrison's particular performance of, of, of masculinity is very different from someone like, like Menzies. And so I think that, that is really, I think, very helpful framework for thinking about how political leadership still operates. And I think one can translate that in some really interesting debates about what's happening in state politics too, surely, during this, this pandemic with the ways in which a figure like Andrews, Daniel Andrews, for instance, has been presented, perhaps comparing that to the image of, of a, a a Gladys Berejiklian. Um, they're, they're very gendered kinds of images that I think have been operating. Mm, it's great to think about the way in which the, the leaders are presenting themselves and it's the image manifestation, but there are structural things behind our leadership models in Australia as well. Australia, of course, has a parliamentary system rather than a presidential one. Chris, uh, how has the nature of our political system shaped leadership and particularly the ways in which political leaders, prime ministers particularly, conduct themselves? It's changed over the last uh, 120 years since Federation. It's it's very interesting. My own research, I've got a book coming out next year on, on biographies of Australian prime ministers in the 20th century, and it's striking that there are virtually none before World War II. It was an era where ideas were dominant, leaders much more a second place to sets of contesting ideas. And in fact, up until the late 1920s, the only time Australian voters saw their political leaders was at stump meetings, if someone happened to come through and you know stand on the back of a truck, or in sketches or photographs in newspapers. Uh, and it's hard to think 
one's way into that kind of situation. You know, newsreels and cinemas, cinemas showing real life political leaders in operation was that it was a revelation. So the the second half of the twentieth century, and uh, to a great extraordinary extent in the early part of the twenty first century, uh, leaders became increasingly important and ultimately have almost transcended uh, party political interests. So now who is leading a party is of near paramount importance. And I think, you know, what Frank just described casts a very long shadow over current politics. It informs a set of stereotypes of, of deeply rooted assumptions about the nature of successful political leadership in Australia that are simply false and outdated. So we've already had one female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. Uh, how she's survived her Prime Ministership, I do not know. I, I give her great points for surviving uniquely in federal politics uh, since Federation, a trenchant, vicious external attack and a trenchant, vicious internal attack simultaneously while managing to go effectively full term in a minority government that passed a huge slate of legislation, uh, including many landmark bills. Astonishing. Now, you know, Australian politics is still gripped by the memory of the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd wars framed by particular people for their own purposes and entrenched ever since. For example, just going back to the, the plebiscite possibility, one hears all the time and this is so underpinned by the masculine assumption, masculine assumptions that are historically rooted that Frank flagged, people will say routinely, including inside the Labor Party, oh, a woman leader would never work in Queensland. Now let's, let's just stop and pause and think about Queensland state politics. A woman like Plibersek, the kid of first-generation migrants, has just won her third election in a row in Queensland, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the most successful female politician in Australian state political history. So, you know, if women leaders are so bad in Queensland, how does one explain that? I mean, you look back a bit further and you remember Anna Bly, for 10 of the last 13 years, Queensland has been ruled by a female premier. So, you know, People, you, you tell people this, they simply do not take it in. The resistance to new data in the face of entrenched stereotypes is so phenomenal. Um, you know, you get a bit more of a glimmer when you add Beres, uh, Gladys Berejiklian and point out that nearly half of Australia's population is currently governed by female state premiers. I mean, it's over. You know, women are here. Women can do it. They have done it. They are doing it. But getting people, especially key political players, especially people in Parliament House, to disengage from these deeply held, historically rooted stereotypes, and that's often for reasons of self-interest, their own political self-interest, is phenomenally difficult. So, Frank, if we think about you know some of those issues that both you and Chris have raised, particularly about the deeply masculine nature of, of politics in Australia and the stereotypes that are, are so deeply held – are we seeing, if we look back over the kind of the sweep of history of the, the 20th century, have we seen real changes and departures at particular points? You know, I, if I think about sort of Menzies, Hawke and then Morrison, you see quite different leadership styles mm. that perhaps are, you know, helped if we think through that lens of, of kind of strong group or inspiring leadership. Yeah. But are we, are we kind of seeing changes over time? And what drives them? Is it driven by mm. the strong personality or is it about social and historical context? Yeah, I think the latter is really critical. I mean, we, we get styles of political leadership that are, are fundamentally patterned by by culture. So a, a figure such as Menzies, who was uh, Prime Minister of Australia for just under one-fifth of the 20th century, so in other words, you know, an enormously dominant figure, was also particularly, I think, during his second prime ministership as he became not so much a father figure but a kind of grandfather figure, it was a highly paternalistic style of leadership. It, it was the notion of the, the, the prime minister as a kind of um, protector of the nation uh, um, uh, and, and highly patrician in a way that you know clearly suited, if you like, a, a society in the 
1950s in which families were conceived as being a kind of nations in miniature, each with a, a, a father sort of in charge in the way that the nation, you know, was sort of patterned in, in similar sorts of ways. That's not a style of leadership that, that I think would be attractive in the same way today, that kind of patrician style was was attempted by Malcolm Fraser to some extent in the 1970s and 80s. It, for the most part, didn't work. Um, uh, it wasn't a style of leadership that became culturally embedded in the way that Menzies did. And, and you know, more recently, we've seen in Hawke's case, obviously, an incredibly emotional, often quite emotional style of leadership that I think was also very much in keeping with changes in a broader emotional economy of, of that period where it was becoming more acceptable and perhaps even desirable for men to show emotions in public. And so I think that was very shaped, if you like, by a change in context. And one could extend that, I think, to, to some of the styles of leadership that we've seen in the more in the more recent past. Again, you know, someone like Morrison doesn't attempt a patrician style of leadership along the lines of Menzies. It it simply wouldn't work. He wouldn't be able to carry it off personally, but I think it would also be kind of culturally unworkable and inappropriate in the very diverse and I think much more egalitarian society in terms of gender and, 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 and race and class and all sorts of things that we have today compared to the world of, say, 1955. So, yeah, I think changing contexts do help to craft, to shape different styles of leadership. That said, I think that leaders continue to combine some of those different kinds of typologies that I was talking about earlier. I mean, in Morrison's case, I think very interestingly, he, he tends to to combine elements of a strong leadership style, but in fact, the dominant mode, I think, with Morrison, bizarrely, I think is group leadership, the one that, that has been normally identified with the, with the centre left, it's this notion of the uh, effectively of the, the the nation as kind of the family or the local community writ large, which I think is very powerful within group leadership, and I think Morrison pushes that notion quite hard. So, yeah, I think different contexts do produce different types of leadership. I might just talk about empathy in leadership and listening. Certainly it's something that's come up a lot on the podcast over the last year or so is talking about the importance of having our politicians listening and listening broadly to constituents. And you've touched a little bit on that, thinking about the diversity of the Australian population. If we look back into our history of political leadership, have we got examples of people who listened and listened particularly with empathy? Oh, it's surely a political skill. I mean, I think to be a poor listener or a bad listener would be uh, an, an incredible frailty for a, a political a political leader. But clearly some have uh, much stronger powers of, of empathy than others. I mean, one of the, the, the immediate contexts in which a successful political leader in Australia has to exercise empathy is in relation to those people that surround her or him who have less power. Um, we know, for instance, that John Howard had considerable empathy uh, in dealing with that particular paradox of, of being a powerful figure, but with you know, others around him, much less powerful, but on whose support he he depended. But that capacity to listen, to, to take seriously the, the, the messages coming from the community, to benefit from being able to talk to people, uh, to ordinary people in their, their kind of daily lives or taking a moment out of their daily lives to interact with a politician. These are, are, are incredibly important skills. And I've, not I've all got away in them. there, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> Look, listening is yeah. a very interesting yeah. concept and, and I'm loving what's happening with listening in terms of the independent groups springing up in LNP mm. seats, people who once would have fitted in as moderates into the old Liberal Party but now are driven out now that the Liberals have gone way to the right. So they are, you know, their politics is embedding in practice practices like kitchen table conversations. It is fascinating. I've, I've been linking up with a few and going and trying to see what they're about. And it's really good old-fashioned what on the social democratic side of politics would be called community organising, but which the, the Labor Party and the union movement has forgotten how to do. You know, let's just look at this idea of listening, and and I'm going to disagree with you, Frank. I do not think John Howard or Scott Morrison are empathic. I didn't, and, didn't and say they are empathic. Well, that, that was that was, kind of you, that was how it came across. So I'm, I'm glad I could give you a heads up about how it's coming across. I didn't mention <laughs> Scott Morrison. Uh, well, no, you're positioning him as, as a group as a group kind of leader, and I would say at the level of political theatre in relation to Scott Morrison, you are right. 
But let's look at the kind of listening that Scott Morrison now does daily and John Howard used to do very, very regularly. And it's a particular kind of listening. It's how is what I'm doing and my party is doing going down with voters and do I need to trim my sales in order to stay in power? Now, that's called doing what the polling is telling you to do to stay in power and it's got to be distinguished from from empathy. I think there's a classic example this month, month with the, the handling of the Billow family who have been incarcerated on Christmas Island. Uh, they're now very reluctantly by the government being reunited in Perth while their three-year-old daughter has sepsis as a result of significant medical neglect, clearly, uh, in state care. Uh, An absolute tragedy. Now, why is the government moving? Is it because Scott Morrison is a group leader who's going, well, the people are telling me I need to really do something about it? No. In my view, not. What has happened is people like these independent groups, especially the voices groups in in marginal LNP seats like North Sydney and Higgins, are putting up banners exposing their local members, who are in each case are LNP alleged moderates, who go along with what the government does. You know, as they say of Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney, he votes with Peter Dutton on refugee policy. You know, he votes with Scott Morrison on climate policy. This is showing up in the LNP polling This is why a government who has been completely recalcitrant, so stubborn on issues like those surrounding the Billow incident, that you're finally getting some movement. And it's not because Scott Morrison is a group leader. It's because he's a Machiavellian leader who is a brilliant accumulator and wielder of power, who is probably closer to his pollster than his family. And that is why you're getting these tiny movements in policy in areas where the LNP has been otherwise intransigent. So I think the concept of listening has to be very carefully unpacked in all its nuances and facets. Um, I I think Scott Morrison is brilliant at the theatre of group leadership, but the substance is that he's running a very dictatorial front bench and he's a stubborn right winger who doesn't like change until his pollster says, mate, you've got to do this. I think there's a lot more that we can unpack in this. Before we do, we're just going to take a short break um, while Frank gathers his thoughts um, and and we we, we ponder on whether there is such a thing as uh, perhaps poll-driven empathy. But listeners, stay with us. We will be right back. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here in the middle of a great conversation between Chris Wallace and Frank Bongiorno in our first episode of our new mini-series on leadership and democracy, particularly in the Australian context. Before the break, we were talking about empathy and listening uh, in Australian leadership. And Frank, we thought we'd start by giving you the right of reply. (laughs) Did you want to follow on what Chris was saying about the role of empathy in the way in which political leaders listen in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I think in any democratic leadership, um, electoral calculation and even opportunism are simply, they can almost be taken for granted. I mean, they're, they're a part of the, the makeup of any politician. So the, the, the point about 
listening, I guess, is, you know, what sort of avenues, what mechanisms does a, a, a political leader or, or indeed a, a political grouping or political party have for, for, for doing that kind of listening? I think Chris makes a good point about independence. I mean, one of the things that surely happened with political parties more generally, and particularly perhaps the major political parties, is that some of those avenues for listening that were there and, and often were there for decades, um, the, 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 the local political brand embedded in a community, for instance, the local member who would be would attend the meetings of that branch regularly, uh, a trade union movement that represented a very large proportion, over half the workforce, that these were effectively mechanisms of democratic accountability, but also ways in which political parties and political leaders could listen. And a lot of those have decayed, I think, with the, the emergence of you know the, what the political scientists call the electoral professional party. And so we have become, I think, much more dependent on the kind of personal capacities, or perhaps hostage would be a better way of putting it to the personal incapacities of political leaders in terms of both their capacity to listen and indeed to 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 empathize. Whereas I think there were there have been structures in the past that kind of effectively forced political leaders to to if not to empathize at least to to listen because that was essentially how politics worked it was the only way that politics could work so frank i i wanted to to just stay with you for a moment but, but chris you may want to come in on this as well so you pointed out that you know menzies was in power for kind of one fifth of the 20th century, which is which is quite extraordinary. And up until the, the point when the coalition lost power in 2007, Australia had had three prime ministers in nearly 25 years. But in the past about 14 years since John Howard lost office, we've seen six different leaders, which of course included the, the Rudd-Gillard kind of situation mm-hmm. that you spoke about. I'm wondering what this kind of leadership churn is doing for the the nature of leadership and the nature of representative politics in Australia and also how it impacts on things like listening and empathy. You know, does it mean that leaders are so focused on what's happening within the party and their position within the party that, that that's taking all their, their energies? So what's your take on, on the implications of this churn for leadership? Yeah, I mean, the, the general impression, we don't know, but the general impression is that it has eroded political trust. I mean, um, as I think is pretty widely known, the surveys that have been carried out roughly over the decade to 2020, and I, I, I use that year advisedly because things change then, but up to that point, generally, when people are asked questions about political trust, you know, are politicians in it for themselves or for everybody? Does it make a difference who we elect? Those sorts of questions. The surveys tended to, to indicate decline political trust. That changed. A number of surveys were done during 2020 uh, locally, as well as things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, and they found a really significant turnaround, uh, a turnaround that's probably on the way down now. We have, I think, one result from a, a, one of those surveys, a, a one around public leadership actually conducted by Swinburne in the earlier part of this year, which suggests that the heights of 2020 uh, are you know, sort of uh, um, no longer there, that we're, we're sort of in a, a slight decline again, at least, it may continue. But what, what is interesting is that, you know, a lot of that leadership churn, I think, did did sort of coincide, at least, with surveys that talked about declining political trust. So I think that was probably one of the, the consequences. Did it sort of incapacitate leaders in certain ways? I think, Sharon, you're suggesting, you know, their capacity to to, to listen to the public, um, to respond to the public in, in, in creative ways. Well, I would have thought so. I mean, if you're preoccupied with um, your kind of internal politics, uh, with the internal party situation, and if you, you know, your party has sort of become beholden to focus group politics and to whatever the latest opinion poll is, it probably doesn't make for a really productive relationship between the leaders and the lead, between political leaders and those that they represent, because, you know, it's almost like Pavlov's dog, isn't it? You know, the, the people speak in the latest news poll and the, uh, the, the, the party apparatchiks act accordingly uh, in, in, in Canberra. It wasn't quite as bad as that, but there were occasions where it approached that kind of that kind of thing. So yeah, look, I, I think that's that's probably um, 
true that the, in, in some ways the, the, the leadership churn during those years has had broader and negative democratic effects. The implications of that, as we well, hopefully are now coming out of, the, of this pandemic, are really interesting. Are we going to see a, a maintenance of the relatively high levels of trust that the surveys have, have disclosed during 2020? I suspect not, but they may not go down to the kind of um, sub-basement levels that I think we, we, we saw in that period of about 10 years, really from, I suppose, from about 2009, 2010 onwards. That seems to be where the, the surveys really went, went down. When Abbott was elected in 2013, for instance, there was no indication in the Australian election study conducted that year of anything like the kinds of levels of trust that had accompanied the election of Rudd or indeed the election of Howard back in 1996. The the, uh, graph just kept going down. Uh, And so I think that's quite telling, but things seem to have turned around a little bit more recently. Chris, what do you think about this period of, uh, of leadership churn in Australian politics? Has it stopped us from getting stuff done? Has it impacted on our policy agenda and on, on meaningful change? It's a really interesting thing to consider whether it's a cause of declining trust, a cause of dissatisfaction, or it's something else. And I think in, in political analysis, a very commonly committed error is to think of an issue, think of a plausible solution and go, it must be that, rather than thinking of all the possible explanations, evaluating them, seeing in fact whether there's a mix of reasons, rather than kind of glomming onto one. And I think there's so much bad politics and so much bad policy around that fundamental analytical error. So personally, I have a theory that there's an enormous hunger across the electorate, not just in Australia, but everywhere for good government. So I actually see leadership churn as a proxy for bad government or with opposition parties, ineffective opposition operations. And to the extent that that reflects bad government and ineffective oppositions, that generates distrust, dissatisfaction, all those dire polls you see of you know, young people losing hope in democracy. And I think there's an enormous scope for any political operator who can just grab hold of the idea of, you know, not empathic government, not this kind of leadership, not that kind of leadership, but someone who will take account of what people really need done in their lives and get it done. I think if you can do that in politics, you're in for a long run. Uh, I think the the leadership churn on the LNP side where, and and let's just pause and focus on this remarkable statistic for a moment, the LNP has won three consecutive federal elections with three different leaders, each of them coming to the job covered in blood from a leadership struggle. Voters didn't care. They were re-elected every time. Now, I think one of the missing things in the conversation so far is that leaders and governments operate in a context. I'm I'm very fond of sporting analogies. I I like to point out that a player only ever can play as well as their opponent allows them to. And I think, you know, Frank, going back to the Menzies long run, you'd probably agree that the Labor Party being bedeviled by poor leadership, first in the extremely brilliant but unstable uh, Doc Evatt, and then by the very earnest, worthy, but plain and dull Arthur Corwell made it relatively easy for Menzies to do a Menzies. And I think if we look at the current era where the Labor Party has, if anything, I think overlearned the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd lesson and is going through an it's-my-turn leadership culture where, you know, a kind of Ernest driver like Bill Shorten can get his two turns and now another Ernest driver like Anthony Albanese wants his two turns. Meanwhile, you know, there's not an effective opposition leader who can do the job of attracting votes, enough votes to get more seats on the other side and form government. And I think the Labor Party's failure to really deal with its internal processes and deliver effective, attractive leaders who can win elections is one of the dire elements in the LNP's underperformance because they have been overwhelmingly in government for for decades now. And to the extent that Labor is not providing sufficient challenge to the LNP to lift their standard of government, I think it's it's dire overwhelmingly 
for Australian democracy. So I'm all for both sides lifting their game. It's not good enough for one side to lift their game. They both need to do it because we need a much, much better standard of government in Australia than the one we've been getting for some time now. Yes. I mean, it is a two-horse race, isn't it? Still, really. I mean, you know, there are independents, there are minor parties, but at, at virtually every election in Australia, a, a voters face a choice, don't they, between one side or the other governing. Um, they like to imagine they can somehow engineer a, a minority government sometimes, but you can't actually do that, not easily anyway. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it depends. Uh, the results of any election will depend fundamentally on really two sets of judgments, don't they, Chris, on, on, on how the government's going, but also whether the opposition is worthy to be to be the government. And uh, I suppose in the case of the Labor Party, you know, there is also uh, unquestionably a, a global sort of crisis of parties of the centre-left and particularly social democracy. Some have virtually disappeared. I mean, French socialists, uh, for instance, have, have really no longer exist. Now, the, the Labor Party isn't quite in that situation, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's, its vote has been in a kind of secular decline. And uh, that provides, I think, a, a part of the context for its its grave difficulties, really, um, in, in Australia's electoral process. I'm interested also in, in the idea of, of courage in leadership. Um, Chris, you were talking about, you know, being able to identify what it is the, the, the electorate wants and being able to deliver that. But I wonder too if there is something about the idea of taking a stand that may not necessarily appear popular um, if it does appear to be the right thing to do. But of course, what is right is highly subjective and it depends who's making that assessment. I mean, I always think for me, you know, John Howard's stand on gun reform was an example of this. And I must confess, I'm not generally a great fan of Mr. Howard. Um, but Frank, what does history tell us about courage and leadership? Is it important or is it is, is it uh, more important for leaders to be seen to delivering on what's popular? Well, they do need to, to take a stand. They also need to take responsibility. I mean, I was listening with interest to Chris's point earlier about the hunger for good government. And I think you, you could even break that down a little and say the hunger for responsibility. And I, and I think that... That may be a, a, a you know a kind of positive sign that's come out of our current pandemic that that political leaders who have basically accepted uh, um, at least a measure of responsibility, or even when they've perhaps uh, you know tried to slip out of full responsibility, have at least been there. And I mean, obviously, Andrews in Victoria is the almost the paradigmatic case of that. Seem to have done pretty well. Um, you know, those who ha have basically said it is my job to to deal with this. It is my job to protect you. That very old impulse um, of of politics of governments. You know, my job to protect you, and have basically done their best to do it, and have done it with a reasonable level of competence. Have been rewarded. You know, we've had state governments. Re-elected, um, we, we've we've had uh, extraordinary surveying and polling results for for particular state governments and premiers, um, and, and and so I think that act of courage of taking responsibility has worked for political leaders during this crisis. And I think yeah, there are plenty of historical parallels that one could could point to from 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 earlier periods. I mean, governments. I mean, think of Curtin in the Second World War, John Curtin as Prime Minister in the Second World War. Um, who had no taste for leading a country at war. I mean, it wasn't his thing, um, but took responsibility for doing it. We've, we've tended to, 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 to reward governments or reward leaders willing to, to do that sort of thing. I think, Frank, you're making a great point there about the premiers, and there's a lovely anecdote. Uh, a friend of mine was helping out in the polling booth for Labor in a coastal Queensland seat during the last state election, and you'll recall the Prime Minister spent a lot of time campaigning uh, with the LNP leader up in Queensland uh, trying to help her overturn Palaszczuk and part of this was Morrison and the state LNP Queensland leader arguing that the Queensland border should be open despite the fact that COVID was running around in New South Wales and Palaszczuk took a courageous and deliberate and systematically stuck to position that the Queensland border was going to stay closed until New South Wales got its COVID problem solved. Now, Morrison bullied Palaszczuk, Berejiklian bullied Paris Palaszczuk, the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard, 
bullied Palaszczuk. I'm I'm sitting watching this in camera thinking, (laughs) wow, keep going, guys. You don't know Queenslanders very well. And, and of course, Palaszczuk really did win, I think, that historic third victory significantly on the back of that stand. Anyway, my mate was handing out Labor how to votes at this Queensland coastal seat, and a very old woman came up to her after she voted and said, I'd just like to tell you I voted Labor for the first time in my life, even though my husband didn't want me to. And my mate said, oh, that that's terrific. Is that because because uh, the Premier stood up to, you know, those people saying the border should be closed? And the old woman said, I voted Labor because she stood up for me. Mm. Now, if you can get <laughs> voters from the other side coming over to your side mm. on the basis that they feel that you are working for them and their interests, mm. you have got it made. Now, we've got a current Labor opposition leader federally who wants to tell us again and again and again about his you know, truly heart-rending circumstances growing up. But, you know, when will Labor move on to it being about the voters in terms of the leader's narrative, not about the leader? You know, it's just so frustrating. Uh, as David Runciman has said, you know, voters – Voters look at a leader and go, hmm, do I like them? But more importantly, they then think, would that leader like me, Mm. right? And so Morrison in the theatre of the 2019 election managed five weeks of Daggy Dad beaming potently into voters' eyes and then beaming lovingly back and all of this theatre is being piped into the lounge rooms of Australians for five weeks, you know, day in, day out. Meanwhile, Shorten wooden, not relating visibly to voters, not liking them, them not liking him. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah, and and I mean, it's quite interesting if we think about um, Morrison too and the whole issue of responsibility. I mean, in those moments over the last year or so when he's evaded responsibility, I, I don't hold the hose, mate, a general sense of disengagement from the, the crisis in Victoria, for instance, in the middle of the year. I think that's gone down poorly with voters. I mean, we, we, we know from the movement in uh, approval ratings, for instance, the bushfires thing did enormous damage. I mean, the Scanlon Foundation at Monash University's, um, so they did two surveys last year uh, around public attitudes, uh, for instance, to, to to the handling of COVID, McGowan and the Western Australian government had a 99% approval rating for their handling of that back in July. By November, it had declined to 98%. To 98%. Now, wow, I you mean, just can't even believe those figures <laughs> well, exist. That's those, amazing. I mean, I do believe them. They basically reflected. I do in, believe in, them. They were yeah. reflected in the electoral politics uh, when, when, when he went to the voters uh, because they won virtually the entire seat, you know, all the seats, you know. So so here's a good uh, question for a PhD student. Why mm. is it that leaders at the state level at the moment in Australia seem to be so much better than federally? Mm. Just a, a footnote on, on Frank's figures there in relation to Morrison. It is true that he is taking a hit. And I think for the reason Frank's saying, because of this accountability shifting, kind of shape-shifting Morrison trying to squirm out of everything, is going down poorly. That said, he still remains well into net positive approval territory and has been for the entire period since the 2019 election. Anthony Albanese is resolutely and continuously in net negative approval territory. Now, the Australian election study that ANU conducts uh, fantastic long- longitudinal set of numbers. If you take a look at the last dozen elections, you'll find that it is true that the most popular leader does not always win the federal election. However, it's also true that the last three times government actually changed hands, the l- more popular leader won the election. So the net approval ratings and their sustained character are not the harbinger of a likely Labor victory at the next federal election. There is so much that we've discussed today that we would love to tease out a little bit more, but we're going to have to draw this conversation to a close. We are going to come back to many of these issues over the next few weeks as we um, work through our leadership mini-series, and I think this conversation has just set us up so well for some of those conversations that we need to take forward. As we draw this conversation to a close, I did want to ask a final question of each of you, and that is, is what is the key lesson that today's leaders can take from the history of political leadership? 
Chris, can I ask you what it is that today's leaders might learn from history? Well, if you want to lead, if you want to win an election, you've got to have energy. And you've got to actually be able to attract votes. So if you're a bit slow, a bit plain, you're probably not going to cut it. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Frank, what I'll do go you- in the exact opposite way and say <laughs> if you're too focused on winning the next election and getting those votes, you'll probably be a really bad leader and you'll make bad decisions. So, so you need to be probably need to be somewhere in between, but Chris. I, 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 no, I, I think I can agree with that, Frank. And I would use I would use Morrison as the example. Hmm. Very high energy yeah. won the election against the wooden leader. Is you know yeah. wiping the dial over the low energy opposition leader at the minute is delivering bad government. I think you're absolutely mm. right, Frank. We have a unity ticket. <laughs> they are consistent, the two positions. Yeah. Maybe we need some some energetic vision and accountability from our leaders. Yeah. <laughs> With that, thank you both so much for joining us today. It has been a great conversation and, and we really appreciate your insights. Frank Bongiorno, Chris Wallace, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Sharon, that was a fantastic way to start our mini-series on leadership. Uh, Having Frank and Chris together in the studio was just the most wonderful way, scene-setting for the conversations that we thought were really important at this particular moment, in this particular year, at this particular time in Australian political uh, dynamics. And I thought they did an extraordinary job of pulling apart some of the issues that we will continue to unpack over the coming weeks. What sort of things did you take away from today's conversation? Yeah, I thought that was a terrific conversation and I could listen to to Frank and Chris all day. I liked that conversation because it was a nice balance between the kind of the big ideas and the the what we can learn from history, but also the really pragmatic edge of politics that of course shapes the behavior of, of politicians because they live in that very pragmatic world. But there are a couple of things that came out that I thought were really interesting. One was around these ideas of responsibility and accountability and delivering good governance, responding to that hunger that there seems to be for a different type of governance and for for a real responsiveness. And the second thing that I thought was so interesting was just how gendered Australian politics in particular are and and that kind of masculine notion of politics. Do you think they're two things we should follow up on, Anna Greta? I think they both sound really important, aren't they? The roughness of Australian politics and the, the gendered history. And I was really struck that having having said in the opening, both of us reflecting on the call and the desire in the population for strong leadership, actually what we're looking for is good government. And so what's that relationship between leadership and good governance? Uh, that will come out, I think, over the next few weeks and how you can get good representation for what people actually want and need in their life through the sorts of leadership structures that we have. Absolutely. So listeners, over the next few weeks, we will be delving deeper into some of these issues with some really amazing guests to continue these conversations with Frank and Chris today. So do join us for the rest of this mini-series and thank you for joining us today. Do get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on some of these issues that we're discussing um, through this this leadership mini-series on these issues that are just so fundamentally important to our everyday lives. And of course, get in touch with us and let us know generally how you think we're tracking. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum at APPS Policy Forum or by email through podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. If you just pop Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you'll find us right there. And we would love you to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to the pod on. We really love to read them and we do take them very seriously. So stay with us over the next few weeks as we keep talking about leadership and next week as we think about this really important issue of local leadership. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Bye, Sharon. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.